Hi, I'm Rebecca Middleton, Vice Chair of the Participant Panel at Genomics England, and you're listening to The G Word. This week, we're sharing the reanalysis webinar for participants I co-hosted recently with Gillian Hastings-Ward, Chair of the Participant Panel at Genomics England. In this webinar, myself, Gillian, Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England, Dr. Susie Walker, Head of Translational Genomics, and Dr. Ellen Thomas, Clinical Director and Director of Quality, delve deeper into how science and technology are evolving at Genomics England and what impact participant data is having. Listen to find out more on Genomics England's approach to reanalysis. We hope you enjoy. Hello and good afternoon everybody and thank you very much for joining us today for this Genomics England webinar about reanalyzing the data which they hold from the 100,000 Genomes Project participants. I'm delighted to be here and to be talking to you and to be able to bring forward um, the great news that we have been hearing as a participant panel for a little while now about what Genomics England are doing with the data that we have all um, shared with them in the course of the 100,000 Genomes Project. So I'm delighted to be welcomed, uh, welcoming today the Vice Chair of the Participant Panel, Rebecca Middleton, is here to help me ask the questions that you have already sent in and that we will have today. And answering those questions are Chris Wigley, who's the Chief Executive of Genomics England. Thank you, Chris. Dr. Ellen Thomas, who is Clinical Director and Director of Quality at Genomics England. And Dr. Susie Walker, who is Head of Translational Genomics, uh, but we just call her the Gene Detective because she's doing some incredible work there in the background. And we will be hearing a lot more about that in the course of the webinar. And any questions that we don't get to answer today, we will be able to um, take and answer afterwards. And uh, a summary of the answers and those questions will be available on the Genomics England website to course, um, along with a recording of this webinar and a blog, which is going to summarise the key points. If you don't have time to watch a whole hour in retrospect, then we will be able to share the blog with you, which will have the headlines in it. So um, without further delay, thank you very much again, Chris and Ellen and Susie for joining us. Um, my first question is for Chris. Perhaps you could start by giving us a, an overview of um, where Genomics England have, have come from to get to where you are today and um, how you've been working with the NHS in bringing patients into this and what's happened. Thanks, Gillian. Very happy to do that. So I guess if we go right back to the beginning, Genomics England was created as a government company to deliver on the 100,000 Genomes Project in partnership uh, with the NHS. And I thought it might be helpful as a first step to just talk through the different phases of that work and who, who's doing what along the way. So if the gods of technology are with me, I'll hopefully uh, share this slide. So the first phase of the 100,000 Genomes Project back in kind of 2013-14 when it was just um, being designed was really in this planning work. So the blue boxes on here are things that the NHS are doing, the pink boxes are things that JAL are doing, um, and the green boxes involve um, either consultation or activities with, uh, with patients and participants. So that first phase was really all about the joint planning and design, which was, um, was kind of co-created with early patient representatives into the recruitment phase of the project where uh, patients who had uh, cancer or undiagnosed rare diseases had a conversation with their doctor, um, saw the, the materials that explained what the uh, program was about and chose to join in uh, to the project, gave samples and, and gave consent for how their data was going to be used. 
those samples were then uh, sequenced to generate the, the genomes. We tapped into uh, other clinical data sets as well. And Gel then spent uh, a lot of effort in uh, sequencing and analyzing those results um, and returning the results to the NHS. So at that time, the NHS teams were uh, the genomic medicine centers. There were um, 13 of those, I think, that processed the findings, um, confirmed them, because the, the confirmation of the findings has to be done by, uh, by those teams of doctors and clinical scientists, and then returned those primary results back to the participants. We're now, you know, that wasn't the end of the story. The, that was really, to some extent, the beginning of the story. And so those patients who had a, a positive finding from the first wave of the projects uh, would go into treatment pathways in the NHS. And we're now in, in this sort of ongoing phase of researching those genomes, those data sets, working with um, clinical interpretation partnerships, um, who are groups of academics, um, and also working le uh, leading work in-house, um, which Ellen and, and Susie will talk through in more detail to keep looking at those genomes, keep bringing the latest science and the latest findings um, to bear on those. And then just as with the primary findings, passing those research findings through to the NHS to kind of confirm and pass back to, um, to patients and participants. So that hopefully gives a sense of kind of who's doing what and where are we up to. I'll stop. Yeah, a few words there, Chris, sorry, about who the results are going to be coming back to. When we've said the result, receive results via the doctor for any further onward work. Who, which doctors are going to be hearing about those? So we, we passed the, um, the research findings to one of seven um, regional genomics lab hubs um, where the clinical scientists um, confirm those. They will then pass them back to the, the relevant consultant who was leading the work and kind of recruited the, the patient into uh, the program. Ellen, of course, is, is one of those <laughs> um, and will say more about that, uh, that interface in, um, in her section of the webinar. I guess the other piece that's important to mention is that, um, you know, the, the 100,000 Genomes Project has been a real world leader and has laid the foundations for a lot of broader activities now, which Genomics England and the NHS um, are involved in. First and foremost, that's the, the launch of the world's first uh, nationwide whole genome sequencing diagnostic service, the, the NHS Genomic Medicine Service. And as well as that, we've done a lot of work through uh, the pandemic on COVID, for example, and uh, other research programs, the largest of which is a program to sequence up to 100,000 uh, newborn babies, which will be happening over the next few years. Um, and I think the really important point to make about those is that the more work that we do, the more there's a sort of positive reinforcement loop, because there's still so much that we don't understand about the genome. Um, and the more data that we have, the better everyone benefits from that. Um, so the additional work that we're doing is, is not sort of separate to the work of the 100,000. Um, it's really intimately connected to it because that helps us to learn more and pass more diagnoses, more findings back to the original 100,000 genomes uh, participants as well. And the final point, I guess, just to make about the, the slide that I shared is also, you know, Genomics England and the NHS work really closely in partnership, um, but we each have quite specific roles. And the role of the NHS is to, um, to work directly with patients, and our role is to support them. And so today we'll be talking a lot about the work that Genomics England is doing in support of that, but we should also be clear that we're, we're not the people who actually kind of treat patients. Um, you know, that's, that's the NHS. Uh, but the, the work that we're doing in support of that is ongoing, as I say. Thank you very much. That's great. Okay, Rebecca has the next question for you. 
Chris, in lay terms, could you pre briefly describe the state of play uh, on the science that really is underpinning all the activities that you guys are engaged with right now? Yeah, absolutely. And as a as a layperson myself, I always need to put it in uh, in simple terms for myself as well. So that's uh, <laughs> that's always helpful. So when we talk about genomics, we're talking about our whole genome, all of our DNA, and there's a copy of that in every cell of our body. Across that genome, there are there are 3.2 billion uh, base pairs that we represent with letters. Obviously, they're like little molecules, but we we represent them with letters. And within those 3.2 billion base pairs of letters. Uh, there are 22,000 genes. So one of the analogies that I like for this is if you think about a kind of a piece of string that stretches from London to New York, you've got kind of 22,000 beads along the string, which are which are the genes that um, that make proteins that then then do all of the all of the things in our body. And so that's about two percent of the um, of the DNA. Across, if we look across all humans, about 99% of our DNA is the same. And so we're looking at the um, where one person's genome is, is different in some specific places from a, a kind of quote unquote normal uh, genome. Uh, of course, we're all different in lots of different ways. So, so there isn't a kind of single perfect genome, but we're looking for where, where people have little sort of uh, differences or glitches that we can try and investigate to see if that's, that's what's causing whatever symptoms it is that someone's been uh, recruited for. So it's worth saying, as we talked about at the beginning of the program and, and continue to talk about, the science is moving really fast here, the technology is moving really fast, and we continue to learn more about um, the genome and how it affects our body um, and our, our wellness and, and sickness and so on. There is still a lot that we don't understand about that. So when, when we talk about these, these variants or glitches in our, in our DNA, we can classify some of those really, really confidently. We know that if you have this particular glitch that you will have sickle cell anemia, for example, there are others that we suspect may be associated with a specific uh, condition or symptom. And there are others that we know are doing something, but we still don't know what, what they're doing. So they're, they're what we call variants of unknown significance. And there's still lots and lots and lots of variants of unknown significance that back to the kind of positive feedback loop, the more that we learn, the more we can actually classify those and, and become more confident. But the final thing that's worth saying is that some diseases genetics plays a really big role, uh, back to something like sickle cell anemia, which is just caused by one change in our DNA. In other diseases, genetics plays some role. It might change our risk factor or how our body responds to that disease. And in other areas, genetics won't play a role. So while genetics and genomics are really uh, powerful tools to help us understand what's happening in our body, they don't give us all the answers for, for all conditions. Um, so we're, we're continuing to work with um, you know, leading scientists around the world to, to bring the latest advances into um, the work that we're doing, both with the NHS and on the research side, but it's still not a kind of magic wand that tells us everything about what's um, what's happening in, in someone's body. Thank you for that. Um, right, but time to bring in Ellen now. Um, she's a, the, um, the, the NHS clinician among us, as well as being uh, closely involved in the work at Genomics England. Ellen, how have you been using participant data up to now, and how are you going to be using it next? Yes, uh, thank you, Gillian. So um, there are really two sort of broad ways in which the data from 100,000 Genos Project participants has been used and continues to be used. The first way, um, which I think is of immediate interest to many participants and, and has been and will continue to be, is really looking at those 3 billion um, DNA uh, letters in the genome that Chris was talking about and trying to target a very specific question to that data. So the specific question is, is there anything that we can see 
in the genome, which explains the reason why this particular patient developed these particular symptoms. And that is then a question which, if we can answer it, then obviously unlocks a lot of things which, which are very helpful in terms of understanding a condition and understanding the implications for a family and so on. So that kind of diagnostic question that we target at the data, that was very much the, the question that was the target of the first round of analysis. So as Chris said, we developed a, an automated bioinformatics pipeline where we used the genomic data and the clinical data from participants and put those together and tried to um, reach uh, something which was a potential answer to that very specific question. And then the output of that was sent to NHS clinical scientists who looked at the output of the automated pipeline and made expert human decisions about which parts of it met the evidence threshold to be useful now to look after families in their healthcare based on what we know about the genome and about that family today. So that human review of the data by these really expert people in the NHS is really crucial and happened for all of the main findings um, in the um, in the 100,000 um, genomes project. So as Chris said, you know, that's really um, only the beginning of, of the story because we have since carried on looking at the genomes and carried on trying to answer that same question because we know that knowledge moves on and over time we will, we will understand, we do understand and we will understand more about genomes and how they relate to our symptoms and our healthcare. We are continuing to target that very specific diagnostic question at the genomes and when we find new diagnoses those are returned to the NHS genomic laboratory hubs via what is called the diagnostic discovery pathway and that is a pathway which the NHS is, is absolutely with us in running that pathway and it's mentioned in the the NHS England genomic strategy across the NHS so that's really helpful for continuing to make sure that this pathway functions and I think as one of your earlier questions was suggesting you know not people the person who originally suggested that a patient joined the project, might have retired or moved on, but the genomic medicine service is still there and is still receiving these findings and is using standard NHS processes for changes in staff over time to continue to receive that information um, and do the, right, do the right things with it. So that's really the first way in which we look at genome data. The second way we look at genome data is in a sort of broader, more zoomed out sense, is how can we use that data really to understand more at a base, basic and quite sophisticated level about the way it, the human genome works, the ways in which the human genome can develop problems, and the ways in which those problems can lead to healthcare issues. So that's a much more sort of, that's not targeted at a specific, answering a specific question for a specific person, that is more of an advancing science altogether. But while doing that advancing science, sometimes we something happens, which then means that we do have a new diagnosis for somebody. So if we advance science by findings by a researcher, for example, finding that there is enough evidence to prove that a particular gene causes a particular condition, then the people who were studied as part of that research out of that research will get a diagnosis because their diagnosis is now a known gene rather than an unknown gene. And so we also have the diagnostic discovery pathway available to us so that as well as doing the specific looking for diagnostic questions, if when we're doing the broader research we come across diagnostic answers, we have the, the, the processes in place to get those back to the NHS for that all-important uh, clinical scientist review. So that's really the two ways in which we're looking at the data at the moment. Thank you. 
We've heard a lot that what, about a quarter of the rare disease patients or the rare disease families who signed up for the 100K originally have got a diagnosis so far. But I think Rebecca has a question which will be on the lips of the other 75% of them, uh, which is one that we had a lot of people come in and ask us this. So I'm sure a lot of people will be really interested to hear what you have to say. Thank you. Yes, I'm one of those many people who didn't get a diagnosis or haven't received a diagnosis so far. What should I do? Should I have another test? If so, what test should I have? What should be my next steps? Yes, uh, thank you, Rebecca. So really that question is tricky to answer at a sort of level for, for everybody because everybody who came into the project came into it with a different type of symptoms, um, a different situation in their family. They've then had different life events or different um, choices that they've been making in life and different evolution of the symptoms that they originally came in with. So there isn't really a single answer to the question about what other tests people should have. Um, it's definitely the case that if things have changed for you or your family, um, or you have any questions about your healthcare or um, um, or, or your, you know, your specific situation, your specific situation, then going back to your NHS team is very much the right, the right way to go about that. Obviously, that starts with um, with the GP, but also there are a range of experts, including clinical geneticists and other subspecialist experts who are available to GPs to consult um, if, if they need to. So that specific question um, for each individual is going to be very much dependent on their own condition and context. I think it is worth saying that even if you didn't have something found on the first analysis, then the things that Susie's going to be talking more about in a minute, about how we're continuing to target diagnostic questions at the data all the time. So it doesn't mean that something won't come out of that for you. And obviously, it's difficult to predict exactly when that might happen for any one individual, but we are continuing to look and continuing to return those diagnoses. So if you did get a negative result the first time round, that was very much a nothing has been found so far. It wasn't a nothing has been found and we've stopped looking. Thank you very much. And we've talked a lot already um, in this webinar about the rare disease arm of the 100,000 Genomes Project, but um, what's the news on the cancer side? What can you tell us about how things have gone with that? Because obviously um, people who um, joined who had cancer already had a diagnosis there, but the question was, was there anything that could be done to further understand their cancers or um, to find a treatment or a trial for them? Yes, absolutely. Um, so cancer genomics is quite different in its context from rare disease genomics. So um, in cancer genomics, what we're really aiming to do is to look at the, the tumour that's developed. So we're interested in the tumour's DNA and what has happened to the genome in the tumour, which has driven that tumour to grow and is then driving it to develop. And the nature of tumours is that they are not static over time, so they may change over time if they if they do um, if they come back, for example, or sometimes um, they're taken out surgically, and then we all very much hope that at that point they've gone and they don't continue to change because they've been taken out um, and, and cured. So, in terms of how we're using the cancer data. We are very much still looking at it and still drawing lots of research conclusions from it um, and learning about how you use tumour genome data to um, how you anal analyse it better, how you visualise it, how you pull out the useful elements of it. But for the patients, that's quite different because for a patient who had cancer 
during the course of the time frame of the 100,000 Genomes Project, any new information that came out now from looking at their tumour genome is very unlikely to be relevant to them because either they don't have their tumour anymore or they have a different tumour now because it won't have stayed the same. So if people do, if participants who join the Cancer Project do develop a new tumour or their cancer relapses, then um, as part of their standard care, they will be talking to their clinicians about, is there a different genomic test that we should be doing now on the tumour I have now? Would that help? Is that a useful thing to do? So genomics is still very much being used now to um, help understand tumours that are developing now and being diagnosed now. But the but new information that we learn about tumours that happened five years ago, for example, are very unlikely to be of any um, of any relevance to the ongoing healthcare for people. So when we're thinking about how we return, how we focus on returning information from our ongoing research into the NHS, that is very much focused on the rare disease context because we know that the germline genome, so the genome that we all inherit from our parents and pass on to our children, is relatively static over time. So that something that we sequenced five years ago, if we find something new in it now, then that is still there and still relevant now. So that's why this conversation has really been very much focused on rare disease. Thanks very much, Ellen. Yes, Rebecca, return. Yeah, thanks, Ellen. Another question from, from my side. I suppose um, an obvious question that as a participant, especially those who haven't had any results or are, have a condition where things are changing, why can't we put uh, participants back through the pipeline? Why can't we look again at their genome? Because as we've heard from Chris, science is moving at a pace. Yeah, I think that's a really important question. So um, I want to sort of zoom out a little bit um, in, in addressing that one. So I'm very aware that in the past, during the main sort of um, phase of the, of the 100,000 Genomes Project, we said to our participants that when everyone in the project had finished receiving the first round of results and the first round of additional findings, we would make sure that all participants benefited from the learning that we had made during from the data that they had contributed to the project so that we absolutely 100 percent you know that has never changed that that commitment and we're absolutely um, committed to continuing to do that one of the issues here has been that at the time when we were first saying that we thought that we knew what the best way of achieving that would be and we thought that the best way to do that would be to take everybody's, every, every participant's genome, if they didn't have an answer from the first time round, and put them back into the, to the new version of the automated pipeline and put them back through, through the whole process. But since then, actually, we have done a lot of probably a lot more learning than we expected to about genomes and about how to interact with genomes and how to interact with that data. And actually, we don't believe that that would be the best way of doing things. So our commitment to wanting to go back to participants and make sure that everybody benefits from the learning is absolutely intact. And it's because of that that we believe that we found a better way of doing it than putting everybody back one by one through the pipeline. So firstly, I just wanted to apologize to everybody. I think we were overconfident in the way that we explained what we were intending to do. We didn't take account of the amount of learning that we would do through the project. And so I think we said that we would take specific technical steps, which now we don't believe are the right technical steps to take based on the learning. So I apologize that we did, that we did, were overconfident um, on our messaging about that one. But as I say, we are completely committed to, to um, continuing to look at the data. And the reasons why, so Susie's going to talk a bit more about 
what we're doing um, uh, instead. Um, but the reason why we think uh, broadly that we think that we have a better solution now is that firstly, the, the pipeline is one way of looking at a genome. It's one way of targeting a question at a genome, but it's not the only way to target questions at a genome. And by if we if we take the same approach again versus taking a new approach this time, actually we think that we can find things and we have already found things that we think we could find more things by using a different approach rather than by using the same approach again, as well as finding the things that we would take by running the same approach again. And then the other thing which I think is really important is that it took us about five years to take every participant's genome, run it through the automated pipeline, and then run it through the NHS process, which is crucial to making the data useful. So we spent five years doing that. If we kick that off again now, started again, it would it would realistically take us another five years. It's a you know it is a it is a big undertaking, which would mean that some people would be waiting another five years before they got to the point where their data had been back through the genome. So that would mean there would be another queue and everybody would be in the queue. Whereas with the approach we're taking now, where we look at all of the genomes and target questions across all of the genomes together, it means that everybody's at the top of the queue every day. Nobody is waiting five years to start the process of having another look at their data. So that's why we really believe that this is the right approach to take. And the final um, thing is just to say that all of the new diagnoses that we find must go via the NHS because that is where the experts are to say, yes, this is appropriate to use in healthcare. It's that the NHS is where healthcare experts sit. And so everything that's going to be used for our healthcare must, you know, it's, I would want everything for my healthcare to go via those, via those experts. But that what we can do by using the current approach is giving the healthcare experts a bit of a helping hand by adding in more evidence and information and presenting that back to them to help them with that process just to make it a bit a bit more efficient for the NHS um, to then process those and return them to patients. So we really feel that this is the, the, the approach we are taking gets the best balance in terms of sticking to that original commitment to make sure that everybody who joined the project and who donated data to the project is benefiting from that, um, that, that donation that they made. Thank you very much, Ellen. I think, um, yeah, we were wondering about whether there's an analogy that we can share to help people understand the, the difference between the original one-by-one -one pipeline approach and the new approach that Susie is developing with her team. I suppose it's the, it's equivalent to um, if you're trying to find in a football stadium people whose birthday is the 3rd of April, for example, how do you find the people who that relates to as fast as possible? Do you ask them one by one or do you just say to the whole stadium at once, put your hand up if that's you? And I, I think that's the, the, the sort of scale of difference that we're talking about here between the original intended report and the intended approach and, and where you're talking about getting to next. So um, I think this is a good opportunity to bring in Susie, um, who's been patiently waiting to tell us all about the science side of things. Um, thank you very much for joining us today, Susie. And the um, first question we've got for you is, can you tell us what you and the team are doing with participant data to help find these new diagnoses, please? Yes, thank you, And um, Slightly to recap, and just to set this up nicely of what we spoke about before, but everybody has so many millions of genetic variants in their, in their genome. And in the case of families with rare conditions, we're often looking for a really small number of those changes that might be related to somebody's health condition. We're looking for one or two genetic changes. So that's a lot of genetic changes in somebody's genome we have to work through to find the really sort of pertinent changes that we're looking for. 
And when we first did this, we, we looked at everybody one by one and, and in, um, as the, in their families, because that's how we have to look at people when they present and, and need an exploration of their genome. But now we're in a really fortunate position, as Ellen said, that we have everybody's genomes in the research environment and in the National Genomic Research Library. And that gives us a huge amount of power to look across everybody's genomes together. And then everybody that has um, really kindly shared their data for research purposes can help to benefit other families across the country to help everybody collectively find more diagnoses. And this is what we're doing now. And as Ellen said, there are research groups working across the country and across the world to help find new diagnoses. And this may be academic groups looking, looking from universities and other institutions. There are also commercial um, enterprises that are using the data perhaps with the objective of developing new therapies. Um, but they may have specific interests in a specific um, condition or they may have a specific type of genetic change that they're interested in. And so what we work, we're doing inside Genomics England is really working with those groups, but also independently in our own work to make sure that the new learnings and the new science that's coming through is, is um, available to all participants that recruited to the, were recruited to the project and everybody has an opportunity to have a new diagnosis identified. And there are some really key areas where the science has developed and the technology has developed over the last few years that we're by looking at everybody's genomes together, we're really able to zoom in on the areas where we think there's a really high probability or high potential finding for, for one of one or more families recruited to the project. And so, um, as, as Chris said, there are 20, over 20,000 genes in the genome. We don't understand yet what all of these genes do. It's a rapidly developing science and we're gaining more and more um, knowledge as time goes on. And so it might be that you were recruited to the project um, a time where the, the gene that might underlie the particular condition in your family wasn't well known and wasn't well understood. But we know now through science which genes have been better described, which genes we understand better in 2022 than we did in 2018. And so we can look across everybody in, in the cohort and say who has a genetic variant in one of these genes that's been newly understood that might be related to their health condition. Similarly, we, um, we know which areas of the genome are technically very difficult to work with. And we know perhaps where the, the family by family type of analysis might have limitations that make things difficult to find in that way. And so by knowing the sort of the technical side as well as the scientific side of how the analysis works, we can look at regions of the genome where it might take um, somebody, somebody to sit and Patiently, patiently look through potential findings in that region of the genome to make sure we truly understand them properly, because that region of the genome might be tricky to understand. And we, we, we really do have this deep understanding of our pipelines. We continue to develop these as part of our, our work with the NHS, and that really helps us to find areas where we think we've learned something that might mean that we can find something for a family that, were, that was analysed previously. How, how are you going about finding these new diagnoses? Yeah, so we're using different techniques to the, those that we used in, in the, um, the first analysis. We are selecting genes and regions of the genome where we think there might be a diagnosis. We're not necessarily using the same um, sets of genes that we used in, to look for diagnoses in the first analysis. Um, in, in the original analysis, nobody's analysis was restricted to a particular set of genes, but we might have used a set of genes to prioritise genetic changes. Um, that we think are most relevant to their healthcare. Whereas now we're taking a different approach and looking at genes that 
looking across everybody at genes that we think could be relevant to the health condition for anybody in the, in the project. To follow your analogy, Julian, we're, we're looking at a gene and saying, does anybody think that this gene might be relevant for them, but using their genome to answer that question. Can you just unpack a little bit about the difference between what the gene panel could tell somebody and what you're telling us about you can do now? Yes, yeah, so in the first analysis, we used gene panels to prioritise genetic variants that were found in that family for genes that are known to be associated with the particular um, condition that is, was known for that family. That's not to say that only those genes were looked at in the analysis, it's just that it was there was a hypothesis that those genes might be the first, the first ones to look at based on what was known about the family. And in many cases, what the, the underlying um, diagnosis was found in one of the genes that was prioritized using the panels. But in other cases, it can be very difficult to predict which genes should be included on the panels, um, which are the right panels to use for somebody's condition if it's a very complicated one. Um, and again, we know that new genes have been described since that time. So now, rather than using this panel-based approach, well, we're, we're sort of using the panels in another way. We're, we're asking the panels to show us whose genomes might have a genetic change in one of those genes known to be associated with a condition rather than using a panel um, to prioritise variants in any one individual genome. Thanks, Lizzie. If I can jump in, I'm an ultra-rare patient. How can I be sure that you're not going to miss me or miss my genes as a, as a rare disease patient? Well, we're not, so we're not looking at everybody's genome one by one. Um, we're looking at everybody's genomes all of the time. So on any one particular day, there's a possibility that a diagnosis may be found for anyone in when any one individual um, in, in the project. Um, we understand that there are people with ultra-rare conditions, and in, and in some cases, it might take a long time before we can find a diagnosis because the genes underlying that condition may not be well understood today in a way that can be used in healthcare. But by using the genomes all together and looking at everybody in the project together, we might we might be able to accelerate that process by finding that actually there's somebody else in the project that has a genetic change in their genome that's very similar to a genetic change we can find in, in your genome, perhaps, or somebody else's genome. And we then can see that the, the symptoms and that the, the clinical presentation of those individuals is very similar. And then suddenly we not only help to find a diagnosis for you, but bring the science forward as well at the same time. And in other cases, we might see that ultra-rare conditions are actually very similar to a condition that we know very well, but might be slightly different from or a slightly different form of a very well-known condition due to the nature of the specific genetic change in your family. And again, by having the ability to look at everybody together, we can start to see these complicated scenarios that um, we all know are hidden in our genomic data. Thank you. Is there a way for participants to know where they are in the process of all of this? It's really reassuring to hear that you're looking at everybody every day, but is there any way of uh, knowing how long it might be before somebody might get an answer? So we're doing this in a different way to the way we did it in the, the, the first time we looked at everybody's genomes. This isn't something that everybody is going to go through the process and come out, go in the beginning and come out the other side. It's an ongoing thing. And so we can't necessarily tell you where you are in the process other than to tell you that every day everybody's genome is being looked at and every day there is the potential for a new diagnosis to be found for your family 
um, it will, this work will continue. Um, we don't necessarily know when a diagnosis might be found for you, but you can feel reassured that your genomes are constantly being explored um, with the aim of trying to find something for your family. Thank you. Um, and I, I suppose a question for you, Ellen, um, as kind of participants, we're keen to play our role. Is there anything we can do to help this process? Yes. And um, so um, I think as soon as you were saying, this research work looks at all participants all of the time. So it's not something where you need to say, please, can you look at me or please, can you make sure that I'm included unless you have withdrawn you know, withdrawing your consent for being an ongoing participant in the programme, you will be included in it. So it's not something where you need to uh, nominate yourself. People are sometimes a bit worried that, you know, well, I've got a new diagnosis now compared to where I was when I joined the programme, but we get refreshes of the data that we get. So for example, if, if you go into hospital, then the hospital will enter a, a code to say that you've been in hospital and to say what you were in hospital with. And that data is collected by NHS Digital and is then available um, with, again, with your name and your NHS number and everything taken off it in the National Genomic Research Library alongside your genome data. So we do have that refreshed data coming into us. So we are able to look at that, at that updated data. So we are, we are looking at all the genomes. We are looking at updated data about your health. Um, and it doesn't matter whether, you know, you don't need your clinician to ask us. You don't need to be still in touch with a doctor. It doesn't make any difference whether you are still being seen once a month in an NHS clinic or whether you haven't seen a doctor since the day you joined the project, we are still looking at the data and we're still feeding it back. So really there isn't anything that you need to do in order to make sure that you are included in this process because you are. Thank you. I feel that's enormously reassuring to the whole audience. Thank you, Evan. Um, so coming back to Chris, we've covered a lot of ground in the last 45 minutes and uh, we're wondering um, what sort of summary overview can you pull together for us? I mean, I, I guess the first thing I would say is thank you. The 100,000 Genomes Programme really was groundbreaking in terms of the science, the ability to translate that science into clinical treatment, not just in this country, but in the whole world. And I've been really struck since the pandemic has kind of eased back a bit, traveling to other countries and talking to other programs. Um, all of them really hold up to the 100,000 Genomes Project as this, this massively groundbreaking work. And so our commitment is to make sure that everyone on the call and everyone um, who, who is a participant in the program gets the, the most benefit that for them and their families as they can for being a pioneer and you know um, coming on that journey with us. And I think on that note, the second thing I would say is the, the journey continues. You know, it's, um, it's not over. As, as Susie and Ellen have said, no one has been forgotten. Um, you know, everyone's on the bus and, um, and we, you know, we want to um, move forward together. The more work that we do, whether it's in COVID, whether it's in newborns or whatever, everyone's in it together. And the more, the more people there are, the more everyone benefits. I do think it's worth just repeating one of the points I made at the beginning around we may never get to a genetically driven reason for um, everyone's condition because not everyone's condition may be driven um, by genomics. Again, that doesn't mean we've forgotten those people or, or that they're, they're not on the journey. It's just that of all of the tools available to medical science, this one, this one may not be the one that, um, that shines light on that um, condition. But the more that we do together, the more we'll know. Um, and the more we learn, the more we can bring those diagnoses um, you know, back to those, those patients and those, um, those families. And so we want to keep working on that together, kind of hand in hand with 
you know, patients and participants, as you, Julian, and Rebecca, you know, convened the panel group, um, but also, you know, on, on behalf of um, of all of the uh, of all of the participants that we serve, you know, and that's that's what gets us out of bed in the morning is trying to do the best that we can for for everyone. Thanks very much. And then I think we're all always really interested to know what's happening next. So this has been a great opportunity to hear more about it. And thank you all again for your contributions today. It's um, really interesting. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. If you've enjoyed listening, giving us a five-star review really helps others find out about the podcast And if you have any suggestions of topics or guests, do get in touch with us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. We're also currently looking for new participant panel members. So if you'd like to apply, do get in touch at participantpanel at genomicsengland.co.uk. See you on the next episode of The G Word.